Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Monday, May 8th. The provincial election is now three weeks away. Do you consider gender parity when you're looking at choosing a political party? We speak with Sherry Graydon, CEO of Calgary-based think tank Informed Opinions, on the importance of gender parity and what can be done to even the playing field for women entering politics. Are you looking to make some healthy changes to your diet? Well, maybe it's best to leave the fad diets and the latest trends behind. Instead, pay a visit to your family doctor. We discuss the resources available and the first steps to take towards making a change like this with Dr. Ted Jablonski, our on-call family physician. And finally, whether we know it or not, we all carry some unresolved pain with us from childhood to adulthood. We talk about how to face these past issues that may be hindering us from growth with Dr. Sharice Johnson, psychotherapist and mindfulness practitioner. We are 21 days or three weeks away from the provincial election with two females leading the major parties vying for power in Alberta. Why is it important that women are represented on the political stage in Canada? Joining us to discuss the importance of gender parity in politics is Sherry Graydon, CEO of Informed Opinions. Good morning, Sherry. Thanks for being live in studio with us today. Good morning. My pleasure. Appreciate it. Okay, tell us a little bit first off about Informed Opinions and sort of, you know, what you do in your organization. We're a national nonprofit that essentially amplifies women's voices, looking to ensure that really every conversation of merit in the country is informed by the experiences and realities and, and opinions of women and men. All right. So let's get right to it. Why do you think it's important to achieve gender parity in politics? Why is that important? You know, representation is pretty fundamental to democracy. When we think about it, we have since Confederation ensured that Alberta has the percentage of seats in the House of Commons that represents the population. So for the rest of the provinces and territories, women and men represent, I appreciate there's no longer a binary, you know, we have trans people Mm -hmm. and so there's a little bit more um, of a continuum, but women represent half the population and we have always defaulted to geography and never really acknowledged that women's life experiences are often profoundly different than men's. And so many countries around the world have deliberately taken measures to ensure that women's experiences and perspectives are reflected in their government. Absolutely. Do you think we do that enough provincially or federally in Canada to make sure that there's a representation there? We don't. We absolutely don't. We are 61st in the world. So, you know, five dozen other countries are doing a better job than this, than we are. And, and it's because they've been really deliberate about accepting that, yeah, this is a thing we need to correct. Many countries started decades ago. Other countries, Mexico, for example, rewrote its constitution. Not that I'm suggesting anybody in Canada wants to do that, but yeah, other other countries are doing better, and and we have voluntary um, measures. But what that means is, do it if you want to, and if you don't, don't. So some parties don't. Yeah, well, some parties don't. But I, I want to also bring it back to a couple of things: women in politics. We've seen those stories, and by the way, we're speaking with Sherry Graydon, CEO of Informed Opinions. Uh, Sherry, we, we we remember you know certain politicians standing up doing a, a TV press conference, and then comments maybe on social media about the hairdo about yeah. what they're mm-hmm. wearing there's that and then also sue and i talk about this quite a bit on the program over the past few years and through the pandemic and the way politicians were treated 
it doesn't seem like a very welcoming pool for these women to, to step into, does it? Well, it doesn't. But and, and yes, of course, women are targeted by comments and, and critiques that their male colleagues don't get. The House of Commons itself is a pretty elbows up in the corners kind of a place. Um, but other countries haven't solved those problems. And they still say, yes, it's important for women to be represented. And the truth is that lots of women are willing and eager to run for politics. And so a couple of things happen. One is if you introduce measures to make sure that they have representation, the the um, tenor of the conversation improves because there's just less testosterone in the room. It has a mitigating effect. And yeah, you know, social media has facilitated all sorts of abuse and women and women of color in particular are targeted much more so than everybody else. That's a problem. Um, but there are all sorts of uh, reasons not to let that be the excuse not to do what's necessary to ensure women are represented. When we look at Alberta, as we said, we've got two leaders of the two main parties vying for power or what's perceived to be. Do we do it well here in this province? Not really. I mean, leadership is one thing. And so it's great that we have two visible, high-profile female role models who are the leaders of their parties. That's an indicator that voters are willing to elect women. And the data shows that voters are no less likely to vote for a woman candidate than they are for a male. But the differences in terms of the party makeup is pretty stark. So the current uh, candidates for the NDP are 50% women, 50% men. In the UCP, that's not the case. The UCP is running 21.8% mm. female candidates. And so depending on which government, which party gets elected and what their seat count is, we might have a very different picture depending. And right now in Alberta, women make up 32% of the, of the legislature. Interesting. So to, to change this, you know, on mass and, and moving ahead, Sherry, I'm wondering, you know, the conversations that we have to have if, if we're parents of girls and, and in the scholastic system, what sorts of changes? Are we seeing any changes to make progress to, to encourage young girls who will move into to the workforce to become uh, politicians? So there have been lots of initiatives over many years. Equal Voice is a national organization that's been on this for 20 years. Um, they have been running campaign schools for women. They have been bringing young women into the House of Commons in a Daughters of the Vote campaign that they've done a few years. Um, but really to make appreciable change, what it takes is systemic measures like they have done in other countries, which include um, electoral reform. Canada's an outlier in our first-past-the-post system. And secondly, gender quotas. I know quotas are seen as a dirty word in some circles, but the truth is 90 other countries have these. And we have voluntary gender quotas. It's just that, as I say, some parties are focusing on that and others are not. So is it just lip service then? I mean, we've got a prime minister who's often talked about, you know, equality within his party and those, he'd, you know, what he'd like to see in power across the country. So is it lip service coming from our federal level or do you think that there's some work being done there? There's all sorts of work being done by individual parties. And let me give BC as an example. BC currently has 44% of its MLAs are women. 
And in the government caucus, 57% are women. So they have a majority government caucus. And what that's translated into is period poverty has ended. So they have put uh, tampons and sanitary supplies into high schools and made them available. They have now started to fund birth control. So when you have women as 50%, you get different policies that speak to the realities that women experience. Hmm. How can, as an individual... If you want to move the needle and make some change or, you know, a, a member of an organization, a non-governmental organization, help to narrow the gender gap in politics. Is this something that we, the people, can do? Absolutely. The number, the, and among the things we can do, we can pay attention to the parties that we support and notice how well they're doing and communicate with our MLAs or MPs and saying, look, this is important to me for all of these reasons. We can vote based on, you know, people's votes are informed by lots of different aspects, but if gender equality is important to you, if representation is a, is a value, you can pay attention to that. Um, we can also just encourage um, governments to pay attention to the path to parity that other countries have made. Super important discussion, especially just being, you know, three weeks away from the provincial election. Thank you so much for your time this morning. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Sherry Graydon is the CEO of Informed Opinions. You can find more at informedopinions.org and the other website that Sherry mentioned, equalvoice.ca. Last week, Jenny Craig, the international company that promotes weight loss through portion control and coaching, announced it will be shutting down effective immediately. Business analysts point to drugs like Ozempic, which has been known to show success for those wanting to shed pounds, as the reason behind the demise of Jenny Craig. If you're interested in losing weight, a visit to your family physician might be the best place to get started. To discuss, we're joined by Dr. Ted Jablonski, our on-call family physician. Good morning to you, Dr. J. Good morning. Well, if someone is interested in losing weight through diet, uh, can we lean on our family physician to get started? Oh, absolutely. It's a great place to start because typically we have a a little bit more overarching approach to the whole problem as opposed to just, you know, looking online, finding some fad diet and just going for it. I mean, we, we try to look at the whole picture and how can you change lifestyle in a very positive way. And that might mean changing how you eat, changing what you do exercise-wise, etc. So big picture and then maybe find a few tools that will work a little more effectively. Dr. J, is that sort of the main criticism of doctors about Ozempic is it's just a, an easy way to lose weight, but you're not changing your habits, nor will you likely keep the weight off once you go off the drug? <laughs> well, it will be a criticism, and, and 10 years from now, we'll know how, how effective this, this is in this, uh, in this time. So every generation has had bad diets or new or different things that are going to revolutionize everything. And sometimes they do make changes. Sometimes it's questionable what happens when you look at it 10 or 20 years later. So we do know that pharmacologically, if we manipulate things, we can do better. And over time, we've come up with better and better drugs uh, to be able to do that. But it's not all about the drug uh, when the day is done. We do have to change how we think about food. We do have to change how we eat our lifestyle. We can't just rely on uh, a pharmacologically driven um, strategy to solve all our problems when it comes to to having a healthy weight. But having said that, and just to connect the dots for folks who weren't in, we've talked about Ozempic on the program with you as well, Dr. J, a drug yeah. designed for diabetes that one of the side effects is weight loss for those who are on it. Uh, with seeing this 
effectively shut down Jenny Craig. I did some digging. Been around, it would have been 40-year anniversary for Jenny Craig this year to shut them down kind of with the snap of the fingers. Uh, this is not the only weight loss pill that we're going to be seeing, I would think, because you think pharmaceutical companies would be all over this. Well, and it's it's going to be the next generation. So what we've found out uh, previously, if we tried to do something pharma, pharmacologically, it was always about trying to work with the gut. Like if we can make the, the gut not uh, absorb calories or flush things through a bit quicker or stimulate the system to, to, to move quicker, that would, that would be the key to this all. Our whole new wave of drugs are all going to be about the brain, to be honest, about the appetite suppressants or how our brain uh, tells us are we full. So when we eat, we think that it's our gut that says, oh, I'm full now, I don't need to eat more. But it's actually our brain that tells us this. It's all the chemistry from the brain. So if we can manipulate that set point from a brain level to say, I've eaten enough, I'm full, I feel good about this, I can stand up and walk away from the table, then we've got something. And that's what Ozempic for the most part does and drugs like Ozempic now and into the future are going to be doing. They're going to be manipulating our brain, not our gut anymore. But then that changes should you go off the drug. So when we talk about these habits, what, what should we really focus on? Are there, you know, one, two, three kind of habits you can lead us towards that maybe help us change the way we think and change the way we operate on the daily? Yes. So, I mean, I, I think it does come uh, back to portion size to some degree. Um, you know, it's funny how we, if we have a, uh, a pet dog or something, we do not allow our pet to be eating multiple times in a day and just keep loading up a bowl, you know, get some massive bowl and fill it full and say, oh, the dog will figure out when to eat and how much to eat. We give it a portion size X number of times a day. If we feed our dog once or twice a day. With humans, we're, we're not dissimilar. We should, you know, eat. Uh, if you want to eat three meals a day, then eat three meals a day. I know people are now intermittent fasting and trying all kinds of variations of that. But we choose how many times we're going to eat we should have a portion size in mind and only eat that portion. Like if we all had smaller plates at home and only filled the plate once, and that was our meal for breakfast, for lunch, for mm-hmm. supper, we would do much better. And that sounds overly simplistic, but honestly, that would make a huge leap forward. We have massive plates. We go to a restaurant. <laughs> we feel cheated if we don't get a big full plate of something uh, and we feel like we leave hungry. So we, in our brains, we, we have, uh, like, and this perhaps, we, we blame the states for this, but <laughs> we've supersized everything yep. and now we, that's how we eat and we need to change that. We need to have portion size that are much smaller and much, uh, much healthier. I'm just wondering, you know, when uh, Sue alluded to habits that we've had, and maybe we've had these habits for a while or our entire lives, the importance of instilling healthy eating habits with our children, if if you can touch on that, because if they have that start, then it's not going to be a hurdle for them later in life. Oh, 100%. And I think when you would ask about, you know, maybe doing a segment on this, it's all about how we were brought up to some degree. Like if you were brought up to eat fruits and vegetables, and to really like that, a little, you know, maybe less meat, less fried foods, less, you know, less carbs. That's your normal and that's healthy. And anything outside of that feels wrong or feels not right. If you never had that background as a kid or, you know, were allowed to snack or eat junk food or really never had healthy meals, never sat down as a family to eat a good, healthy meal, that, that then that's not your norm. And then trying to learn that is very difficult later in life, that this is healthy and good when you've never had that. 
So starting with that is a huge foundation, and then everything else doesn't feel right. The unhealthy eating just doesn't feel right. And kids who, who've, who've sat down with meals, who've been sort of taught properly from their parents and, and watching how their parents eat or how their family eats, they do way, way better because it's normal and they feel good about it. It's not something that's odd or, you know, why are you eating, you know, fruits and vegetables? Well, why wouldn't I eat it? Mm-hmm. Because it's healthy and this is, I like, I love fruits and vegetables, right? So, you know, that we do need to teach our kids. We need to coach them. We need to, to, to show them essentially good, healthy eating uh, habits for sure. Fantastic advice, Dr. J. Thank you so much, as always, for your time. Okay, you betcha. Have a great day. Dr. Ted Jablonski is our on-call family physician. It is Motivational Monday, and this week we're starting off your week on the right foot, helping you get, well, kind of get you unstuck in your life. Joining us this morning is Dr. Sharice Johnson, psychotherapist and mindfulness practitioner and author of the book, Expired Mindsets, Releasing Patterns That No Longer Serve You Well. Good morning to you, doctor. Thanks so much for joining us. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Appreciate your time. You talk about patterns. Can you tell us what inspired you to write this book? Yeah, so I wrote this book in the middle of the pandemic as I was watching so many of the people that I know, people that I worked with and was supporting, recognize the patterns that they were using to try to cope with things were no longer available So everything was coming up to the surface and they felt overwhelmed, flooded. Getting access to care was extremely difficult. So I wanted to put a resource out there that was helpful and reflective that could walk people through the process of going, what happens when I realize that what I've done is no longer effective? All right. Yeah. So so recognizing the pattern is one thing, but how do I determine that it's negatively affecting me and or not serving me, Dr. Johnson? What sort of a, uh, you know, do we draw a line down the middle of a white sheet of paper and look at our lives? <laughs> how does that work? Yeah, I wish it was that easy. But really, I'll try to get people to understand that sometimes it's not always about it being big and blaring. It can be subtle. For example, we often love a society being productive, and we feel like this is part of what's made me successful. But then we might need to realize but it's also hurting my relationships. It's also hurting the people that I love because I'm not fully present with them. So having a piece of paper is helpful, but it's sitting back and going, where is this useful, but where is it also limiting some area of my life or preventing me from putting the energy that I need into an area that help that would help me kind of increase my potential or have a greater sense of peace and balance. I love it. Uh, can you kind of discuss maybe a specific technique or a strategy that, that our listeners might be able to use to identify and therefore release an expired mindset that they may encounter in their own life? Yes. So one of the most common mindsets that people may have is this always happens to me. And when we have that mindset, it really kind of places us in victim mentality of why try and we're very focused on the negative or what's not going well. So if you're feeling that way, you're sitting down, this always happens to me, and then you do want that piece of paper and you go, what's the situation that I'm feeling like this always happens? Write it down specifically. What's different about this situation than my experiences in the past? And that's the different piece of recognizing you're not the same person that you used to be. And here's what's different about the situation. And then the third step would be, so how do I want to respond differently? Situations can happen that are similar. 
But here's what's different about the situation or about my ability to handle it and how do I want to respond because it's really important to bring back in choice and let you know that you become what you believe. Speaking with Dr. Sharice Johnson, a psychotherapist and mindfulness practitioner. Dr. Johnson, you know, when we talk about patterns, can they just be things and situations or could they include people? And if we're releasing a pattern that involves somebody in our life, uh, how do we do that? Yeah, they can definitely involve people. In particular, they can involve kinds of people. So if we, for example, are nurturers and we tend to connect ourselves with people who appreciate, oh, I love what you give to me, but you don't expect anything in return that's helpful until you have a need and then feel like, why am I surrounded by people that don't reciprocate? So once you acknowledge whatever pattern that you're in that doesn't feel great, If it involves people, you can't always take those people out of your life. It might be family. Then that's when you want to look into boundaries. What kind of boundaries am I willing to put in place in small ways and work my way up so that I change the way myself and this person interact if I can't completely remove them out of my life, which is a really hard step. Patterns, boundaries, there are lots of things that we need to be aware of. What if we don't have a great sense of self-awareness? Is that something we can improve upon? We can. And, you know, that can be done. Part of me being a mindfulness practitioner is getting people to learn how to stop and check in. So one simple intervention is two to three minutes a day at different times, really stopping and going, how am I? What do I need? And what do I need to adjust? And that simple technique, because most of us only stop if we're exhausted at the end of the night or long enough to plan the next action. So checking in with ourselves and asking those questions helps us move away from doing everything for everyone else and really focusing on our own awareness. And it can absolutely be improved. Wow. That's kind of the mental checklist I think we could all use at this Mm -hmm. time. But when it comes yeah. to the, the, the patterns themselves, and I'm sure that's a part of the tool to, to find out about these patterns, um, do we get better? And, and can you learn to get better at recognizing patterns? Is it like a muscle? The more patterns you recognize, the more you're able to recognize? Great analogy. And yes, that can be also overwhelming for some people because once you recognize it, you're like, I can't unsee this. But awareness is the most crucial step. And I want people to know it's also intended to be the longest step. Let's say, for example, if you're an anxious person and you realize that when you're in situations and you're anxious, that you fiddle your fingers or move around a lot. In the beginning, you may not realize it until after you're out of the situation and then you're looking back and playing that through your head. Awareness allows you to back that up where you eventually can get to the point where you go, wait a minute, I can sense that this is something that I'm going to do and here's what I'm going to work on. The other thing that I will say quickly is we have this amazing ability in our brain called neuroplasticity, which means the brain has a lifetime ability to change the way it's wired. So those habits and those patterns by our daily choices and awareness can change, which that's how we know none of us are stuck forever unless we choose to be. The book is called Expired Mindsets, Releasing Patterns That No Longer Serve You Well. Dr. Sharice Johnson, psychotherapist and mindfulness practitioner. Uh, doctor, we'll send people to your website, drsharice.com, and it's C-H-A-R-R-Y-S-E. Thank you so much for your time on this Motivational Monday. Thank you so much. Have a great day.